My first real encounter with the police, that happened when I was 19. I was in my first year over at York University. I was in my undergrad for public policy at the time, and I was on my way home from work, and it was around Christmas time. So I was doing like crazy late hours. So I'm finishing work like 11, only to catch local buses like right. 12, 1 in the morning. And an officer actually came up to me and asked if he could see my ID. I turned to him, I said, why is there a problem? And then an officer next to him actually tackled me to the ground. I got thrown in the back of a police car. I was searched the whole nine. And uh, then I was let go without any reasons whatsoever. They didn't even say that you matched a suspect in the area or anything like that. It was just... Actually, what they said was I looked lost. Oh, fuck. Okay. So they just tackle lost people now? Like that's that's showing for hospitality? That, like that was their excuse? I guess it's like the easiest answer, yeah. That's Christian Levine talking to Supriya. We'll hear more from him later. Lately, we've heard a lot about police violence against black people. Just last week, for example, a Florida police officer shot a black man while he lay on the street with his hands in the air. You might think, well, I mean, that just sounds like Florida to me. But before that, there were police murders of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile in the States. And just this week on Sunday in Canada, a black man in Ottawa was critically injured by police. Witnesses told reporters that the man had been beaten by police officers and that he lay unconscious on the ground for about 15 minutes before paramedics arrived. Activists in Canada, like Black Lives Matter, are often told it's not as bad here. This is Canada. It isn't Ferguson or Baton Rouge or Chicago. But maybe that's not a good enough standard to go by. I think setting the bar low just so you can walk over it isn't good enough. Because police in Canada do engage in racial profiling, and Black men are killed by police. We're going to hear from a couple people who've experienced racial profiling themselves, and a man who's crunched the numbers and found that we're not so different from the states as we think. I'm Vicky Mochama. Supriya is away this week. This is Canada Land Commons. This episode of Canada Land Commons is brought to you by BarkBox. Every month, BarkBox picks the best all-natural treats and innovative toys to match your dog's unique needs, whether it has allergies, is a heavy chewer, or just your average pup. All of BarkBox's edibles are made in the U.S. or Canada. It's a great way to try a variety of treats and toys from local businesses that you might not find otherwise. Each monthly box has a theme. New and unique toys continue to keep your dogs engaged, interested, and happy. And if your dog doesn't like something in the box, BarkBox will send something new that they love for free because they're all about dog happiness. When you sign up for BarkBox, you get an extra box free by using our offer code. Go to getbarkbox.com slash commons. Again, that's getbarkbox.com slash commons to receive an extra month of BarkBox for free. When I moved to Winnipeg, uh, it's documented. I was driving. And uh, all of a sudden, I seen these cops. So I pulled over. And I turned the car around, jumped out the car. And all of a sudden, these cops pulled me over come running up on me, throw me on the ground, ask me, you know, where am I going, what's this and that, and throw me in their car. They go and search my car, they tear up the car. They take lottery tickets, unscratched lottery tickets. They took those, and they trashed my car, and then they drive me around the block asking me where all my drugs are. And, you know, I'm, I work with the community, you know what I mean? Like, I, I won Most Outstanding Manitoban last year at the Indigenous Music Awards. 
I was telling him I just moved into the area. I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know anything about drugs. And, and then they got a call. And then they pulled me over, took me out of the vehicle, dropped me off in front of my house, took me out of the cuffs and told me to get the hell out of here. That's Helen Back, a hip-hop artist living in Winnipeg. It's just funny because like, when I grow up, you'll never catch me say anything bad about the RCMP type thing. But, uh, you know, I just show experiences that I've had and, and ways that they've dealt with certain things that kind of made me switch my opinions on, on, on them a little bit. Like the way they treat Aboriginal women. You know, my mom's an Aboriginal woman. My wife is an Aboriginal woman. I've seen incidences where and heard about incidences where, you know, they illegally search people. They stop my friends and even myself all the time for nothing, for no reasons and whatnot. It's a perpetual thing that keeps happening. So I bet this part of being a native in Canada. You know, you're, you're going to get profiled regardless if you own a business and you're a millionaire. So if you're a bum on the street, you have nothing. Yeah. It just happens. It happens. It happens from the youngest of ages to the oldest of ages. I mean, I know elders who don't like talking to police or anything because of the way they've been treated by them. An idea that comes up quite a lot now that we're talking about policing in Canada is that people of color and Indigenous people don't have anything to complain about because this isn't Ferguson, Missouri, and it's not Baton Rouge, Louisiana. What do you make of that argument? I'm not saying all police are bad. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying there's just certain incidences where it happened. And, and, and if people are saying you know, Canada is nowhere near like the United States, you know, and in Canada, I'm talking about if anybody had their rights questioned or taken from them by the cops. That happens here a lot. They're not killing us and shooting us and whatnot, you know, like the states is, but they are taking away our rights and they are testing the waters and they are, you know, look at the jail system. The jail system is how much percent aboriginal. But there's those extreme cases in the states that have actually made the United States take notice of it more. So what do you think is a way to improve the relationship between the police and Indigenous people? I think it would just be more understanding to what we go going on as Native people. I mean, we're not all bad. I mean, if you look at what, what we already went through, the systematic genocide and depression and oppression of residential schools, a lot of the police officers don't understand that that's affecting us to this day. My late elder, she would cry when certain songs came on because of how she was raised and, and what she went through. And that there affected my generation in a sense because I'm part of it. Also, I don't know my Cree language. That's another thing that was lost, lost in, in the mix too. So maybe some sensitivity training, maybe more, maybe more Aboriginals on the workforce even. <laughs> Sorry, I got. I got my kids in the background. But um, if there is going to be any change or anything, it's going to have to start in a grassroots level. It's not going to be just, bam, you know, Prime Minister is going to say, okay, police, be nice to everybody. They're supposed to be nice to us. They're supposed to be happy to, to serve us and make us feel like regular citizens. They're paid by the taxes that they say we don't pay, but I know I fucking pay taxes every year, you know what I'm saying? So, like, they're paid by that kind of shit. They're supposed to be the smiling face. So if they're supposed to be smiling faces, why, when I drive by them, I even turn down my own radio and I tell people in the vehicle to shut up and I have no criers, I have no, I have no, no nothing. It's, cause it's just normal. Can you tell us if you've put these experiences with police officers in your music? There's this one song I, I did. It's uh, called Caught Up. It, like, it made some slight burn around, like, my, my friends and people in my circle, but I never really released it. It's based around 
the mind state of a native when he gets pulled over by a cop. During the song, it talks about how, you know, they're pulling me over for what? What did I do? Then it goes from pulling me over to taking me out of the car, pulling the guns on me. And then I, I, I end up waking up in a ditch on the outskirts of the town. No teeth in my mouth, beat up, no shoes and stuff like that. These are all stories that I've heard. That stuff happens. There's a point where they call it Starlight Tours. People know what Starlight Tours are. What's a Starlight Tour? Starlight Tours are like when the police officers take certain individuals, people that are being belligerent, I guess, or whatever, or just people they don't like. Take them to the outskirts of town, beat them up, take their shoes off, leave them with nothing. Let them run home in the cold and the snow, you know? Those have happened before. Those are reported cases of those things happening. That was Caught Up, an unreleased song by Helen Beck. So Starlight Tours, racial profiling, and arbitrary stops. All of this is happening in Canada. But still, some people will say it's not as bad here as it is in the U.S. Akwazi Owusu-Bempa is a sociology professor at the University of Toronto who studies race in the criminal justice system. His research found that the two countries are actually a lot alike. So just as we were heading into the studio this morning, we found we heard news that a black man in Ottawa had been arrested and critically injured by police. How do stories like this affect your work? One of the things that stories like this do is bring the work that uh, I've been doing for the last decade and, and people here in Canada and the U.S. have been doing for decades to the forefront of our consciousness. It's not like these beatings of minority uh, citizens or uh, the use of force wasn't present before. But I think now with video cameras on phones and heightened awareness to these kinds of issues, they're just being made much more public than they ever were before. And so that gives me some kind of promise that we might be able to start dealing with these in a manner that we should. Tell us a bit more about your work. What do you research? My work sits mostly at the intersections of race, crime, and criminal justice. And I'm most interested in uh, policing. I wanted to be a police officer when I was young, and I'm uh, very interested in how black males perceive and experience policing, both from the perspectives of the citizen and from the perspective of law enforcement, so black law enforcers themselves. You co-wrote a piece in The Globe and Mail titled, A Hard Truth, Canada's Policing Style is Similar to the U.S., how is it similar? Yeah, so I co-wrote that piece with uh, human rights lawyer Anthony Morgan, and, and he's also been doing a lot of work in this area recently. And how is it similar? Well, like our policing models are established in very much the same way, actually going back before our formalized models of policing. If you look in the United States, law enforcement was originally to control 
first captive and then freed slave populations. So policing was used as a form of racialized control. Here in Canada, the Northwest Mounted Police, our first formalized police service, was set up to uh, kind of oversee the expansion and to calm the West before business moved that way. And so, of course, we had racialized policing there because it was Aboriginal groups that they were coming into contact with. So we've got a history of racialized policing. And then our police services are also built on the London Met Police model, so the Pelian model of policing. They're paramilitary. We have armed officers. And so that's the background. Now, today, we can compare, for example, Toronto and Chicago, very similar-sized cities. Now, of course, they got very different demographics and politics and histories. Uh, but surprisingly enough, we see policing practices in both these cities that are much more similar than we'd expect, given the huge difference in crime problems that Chicago experiences compared with Toronto. So we've had all this discussion about carding recently. Chicago uses the exact same term. They card. They use the same hotspot style of policing and aggressive law enforcement tactics that we know may, in the very short term, reduce crime, but in the long run lead to uh, community dissatisfaction with the police and then less cooperation and so ultimately less public safety. So what kind of policing models should we expect if we're looking at Canada specifically? What should we be getting that we aren't? Well, I think uh, in some ways we can look to the British model of policing or the how the Brits do policing now. So they have less police services. So let's talk about some of the differences. America's got about 18,000 police services. Canada's got less than 250. In England, they got 23. So it's very different to manage and kind of oversee 18,000 police departments compared with 23. So we need to acknowledge these types of differences, but we're much closer in terms of number to the UK. And so things like oversight. In England, for example, if an officer is blacklisted from one service, they can't work for another service. Now, if we look down in the United States, some of the problems they've been having there because officers are bouncing around. I think one of the biggest things is that all our officers are armed. Personally, I don't think that everyone performing some kind of law enforcement function needs to have a gun strapped to their waist. There are certainly times and places where that's appropriate. Perhaps that's times of day or neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. But I don't think every uh, law enforcement officer walking around this city or any city in Canada needs to be armed. There are people who would say that by not arming the police or having all the police officers be armed, that puts police in greater danger. We might argue that having a weapon puts police in greater danger because they put themselves in situations that they wouldn't had they not had a weapon. One thing you write about is that Canadian police pride themselves on having taken lessons from American policing systems, especially the FBI. What effect does that have on how they police minority populations? So one of the things that I think that does, and we see this in a number of different ways, one of my colleagues would always talk about after the spike in gun violence in 05 and 06, we'd be bringing police leaders up from the United States to tell us how to reduce crime in our neighborhoods. And this is my, my former PhD supervisor, Scott Wortley, who said, the types of uh, solutions they're proposing would be like giving chemotherapy to a patient with a cold. Like we don't have these same serious types of violent crime in our inner cities that America does. So why are we learning from these people who have much greater problems than we do. And so some of the tactics that they were trying to get us to import were wholly inappropriate, right? So we see, I think a lot of it is, again, this hard enforcement style that's often racialized. And so one of the uh, things we talk about in the Globe piece is Operation Pipeline, which was originally developed as a drug interdiction program by the LAPD. And they use what they call drug courier profiles. And so these were heavily racialized. So you're looking for brown or black people that were driving raggedy cars or were driving nice cars that were dressed really horribly or dressed really nice. If you looked like a bum and you're driving up and down the highway in a shoddy car, you could be moving drugs. If you looked like a businessman and you were of color, you might be moving drugs. Well, the RCMP adopted this uh, model here in Canada, and it's, it's come under great criticism for basically underpinning racial profiling. 
What do you make of the argument that some people will say, well, they don't understand what people are complaining about. You know, this isn't Ferguson. This isn't New Orleans. Canada is very different. Does that argument hold true for you? Well, I think if we look at the state of not only the inner cities in the United States, but all through, you know, you talk about middle America, the U.S. does experience, I think, a level of deprivation that most Canadians, now if we were to go to some of our reserves, our more remote reserves, and even some areas of inner cities, you might be able to make the argument this isn't the case. But on the whole, I think we've got a much wider uh, and stronger social safety net. So we don't necessarily have the depth of the problems, but we still have them on a scale. So one of the things I like to do when I compare Canada and the United States is say that the countries are very similar, but America like it does everything, likes to do things bigger and better. So it does crime bigger and better, it does guns bigger and better, and does criminal justice bigger and better. Mm -hmm. So when we look at racial differences, for example, the gap between white and black or white and Aboriginal are often the same. The difference is, you know, a white American is much more likely to be shot than a white Canadian, right? And so that bar has just moved so much higher in the American context. And so these problems are more severe. But, you know, I like to look inward as well as outward and think that we can always improve on our own situation. And so it's these problems and these disparities that I like to draw attention to so that we can move, acknowledge and move beyond them. I want to go back to something you mentioned. You said you grew up wanting to be a police officer. Yes. How has that changed or what stopped you from being a police officer so, now? Uh, so I was actually born in the UK. And so when I talk about the British police, like not having guns, right, these officers walk around with, as a child, you think a funny, you know, bobby hat. They're unarmed. And oftentimes they were walking. They weren't in cars. Well, I moved to Canada. My neighbor was a retired Metro cop. As a, a nine-year-old, you know, I had this romantic vision of, of this guy driving around his fast car with a gun catching, and I've got air quotes going here, bad guys. So I went through kind of my formative teen years wanting to be a police officer, and I went to Carleton to study criminology. And my first criminology course, the Toronto Star's racial profiling series dropped, and my crim prof brought a fair bit of attention to that right off the bat of class. And two weeks in, I realized that policing wasn't what I thought it was, that the bad guys weren't necessarily bad, that there was a whole lot to policing that like, I hadn't really considered. But I was still very interested in policing itself. So I went from wanting to practice policing to wanting to study policing. You also spoke to police officers in Toronto, a lot of black police officers who are police. What did they have to say about the relationship between the police and minority and indigenous populations? Well, so one of the key things, I think, when we talk about uh, any minority population, we talk about black populations, we talk about them as a homogenous group, and they're not, they're a heterogeneous group. And so certainly there was a diversity of views amongst the officers I talked to. So some of the officers held very kind of conservative law enforcement type views, and they would put a lot of the blame for these relations on minorities, saying that they were either complaining or that they were engaged in crime and drug dealing and things like that. And so they brought police attention on themselves. I'd say there were a fair uh, number of officers who went into policing with the idea that they were going to be doing a service to their community. And so they still wanted to do good. They still saw good in the community, but they'd been also influenced by the police culture, like this mentality of a, kind of an us versus them. Mm -hmm. And so while they still like had these kind of uh, good notions of what they wanted to do, uh, when I got them to explain a little further, they still did a fair bit of victim blaming. And then there was a sizable group of officers who realized some of the problems that police services face in terms of uh, issues of racism and sexism and classism and the likes, homophobia. And they acknowledge that while police have a, a, a difficult job to do, that police services often don't do themselves any favors in communities when they practice this very hard enforcement. When I say hard enforcement, this is the type of policing where officers are roaming around that you associate Tavis, the Toronto Anti-Violence Intervention Strategy with, mm -hmm. and carding and like kind of hot spots policing, where the cops are going in and kind of banging heads and not developing 
relationships with community members. And so the officers acknowledged that there wasn't enough of that being done. And then also some of them that there were larger societal problems that the police really got to deal with the byproducts of other social ills, the um, kind of withering away of the welfare state. And those are the types of issues that the police end up having to deal with. So in your research, what's missing? Because I was looking around and I was trying to find, you know, there must be some sort of database on, you know, who gets stopped and who goes from being stopped to arrested to, you know, going through the system. What's missing? So you, that's a, a great question. I think one of the first things uh, that we really need here in Canada, if we're going to take issues of uh, justice and race and justice in particular seriously, is we need access to reliable data from the justice system that's broken down or disaggregated by race. So at the moment, although you know we um, often pat ourselves on the back for being this great multicultural nation that's accepting of immigrants and the likes, our government and our justice system basically has a de facto ban over not the collection but the release of racial data from our justice system. So we don't necessarily know unless folks from the Toronto Star or wherever else use freedom of information to get access to this data. We don't know who's being stopped and searched. We don't know who's being arrested and for what, what length of sentence they're getting, whether that's in prison or community, and how they're faring after they're released. So if we can get good data, what tools would that give to the police or to the criminal justice system to minimize ra- racial bias? So racial bias. So I think we got to acknowledge two things. So there's racial disparities in these statistics. So if there's a difference between white is often used as a benchmark, but we could use perhaps Asian groups often faring better than whites in terms of uh, activity and crime and contact with the police, at least as far as official statistics go. So this data would allow us to determine levels of disparity. And disparity doesn't always mean that there's discrimination in the justice system. Because we know that there's discrimination and marginalization and the likes in other areas of society, so in education and employment, we know that black and Aboriginal kids are less likely to graduate from school, less likely to get a good job, and the likes they're more likely to come into contact with the justice system because they live in social circumstances that would dictate that. So this data would enable us to identify these points where we have problems, right? So I would argue not only for the justice system, but for earlier parts in our kind of social structure. Uh, but we can identify, is it, a, is it a matter of disparities and stops? Or are people being stopped at the same rate and just dealt with differently after the stop? Or is it once someone's been arrested, charged, and then they're being sentenced. We know that people aren't stopped at the same rate, but hypothetically, if they were, they were charged and uh, processed through the courts, is it a matter of difference in the courts? Is it judges sentencing differently, or is it juries? Or is it once we get to corrections and classification? Or is it parole decisions on the back end? We don't know if there are. We know some of the points where there are issues, but we really don't know how these things look throughout our justice system because we don't have access to this data. Who does have access to this data? Is it collected at all? So uh, certainly the police and the courts collect a lot. uh, The police and corrections, pardon me. So the police and our jail and prison systems collect a lot of race-based data. And uh, myself and and other organizations often use freedom of information to get access to that data. The courts actually don't collect nearly as much data as they could. And I did a study with a colleague, Paul Miller from Nipersing, and as well as some work for Public Safety Canada. And in speaking to justice officials on this, especially those folks at StatsCan, it looks like the systems are really in place to have not only kind of systematic data collection, but also have them linked Hypothetically, they could be linked through the different facets of the justice system. They might need some kind of modernization in terms of software and the likes. But the capacity to collect this data is certainly there. It's more the will to do it. So then it seems like what ends up happening is a lot of anecdotal stories get shared. You know, every young black man I know has particular significant story, each of them varying in drama or, you know, the extent to which it ended up down the criminal pipeline. 
But then these stories are shared within the community, then become largely invisible to white Canadians. How do we bridge these gaps? One of the big problems we have is because we're exposed to so much American media, and the Americans aren't at all afraid of releasing this data, that our views get heavily tainted by theirs. So we certainly have personal and vicarious experiences amongst community that, as you mentioned, until someone like Jim Rankin or Desmond Cole comes along and writes on these, aren't necessarily known by wider society. Police leaders historically have referred to these as, she said, anecdotal. Like these are real stories. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when the chief of the Peel police uses one instance of carding having solved a pretty serious crime to suggest that they need to card, but then won't accept the testimony of citizens in their treatment. We've got a bit of a problem there. But these are, it is viewed as anecdotal rather than a systemic problem. At the beginning of the show, you heard Christian Levine. We wanted to speak to him because he's come up with an interesting solution to some of these problems. When he was roughed up by the cops, it changed the course of his career. Christian is now a criminal lawyer at Wiley and Levine. And he wanted to find a way to help other young racialized kids who also found themselves dealing with the cops. So he created this app called Legal Swipe that gives you advice on your legal rights when you're stopped by the police. For example, if the police show up at your door and ask for your ID, it tells you exactly what to say. He spoke to Sapria. Can you tell us a little bit more? Like, what was your inspiration? Was it these sort of compounding encounters with the police or just anecdotal stories that you heard? Or was it like hard data and stats that kind of drove you to do this? Firstly, it was my own experience, me having that real life experience of seeing how police act uh, when it comes to youth, particularly racialized youth. But also, I was doing legal rights workshops throughout law school. And I noticed that a lot of the information, it was very cumbersome and very difficult to get through for a lot of people. Um, So I wanted to give them something that they could kind of go home with and they could understand on their own terms. But also the stats. Like I understand that even though right now there's a lot of attention that's on police shootings, I think this is representative of the social and economic conditions of a lot of black people living in the Americas, right? Yeah. And the only way we could go about fixing these is not look at one-off solutions and saying, hey, that was a bad cop, but looking at systemic solutions. And for me, that systemic solution was public legal education. Do you think in going to law school, I have a legal background myself, and I just found when my interactions with the police, I became definitely more assertive. Like once I actually knew what my rights were, all of a sudden I was telling police like, no, I actually, you actually can't tow my car and you actually can't ask for my ID. So did you find that helped you and it empowered you and you're hoping other people will kind of That assisted me. Going to law school definitely gave me an idea of what my rights were, so I felt comfortable asserting them. But I think there's a lot of people who are in privileged positions who are completely fine asserting their rights, even when they don't know what they are, right? So for me, it, it was being able to put people in a mindset that, hey, we're living in Canada, we have a charter here, and this is something that we pride ourselves on. Our human rights record is known around the world. So every single last one of us should be educated on what our legal rights are, and we should be able to use them. And so what do you say to people? Because I hear this all the time from sometimes they're well-meaning, sometimes they're downright, you know, undercurrent of racism there. But there's always a sort of, well, why don't you just comply with the police? The police are the good guys. And if you have nothing to hide, then what are you doing? That's my racist voice. I understand. And you know what? It's because the police are very focused in the investigations that they do. I think they're very targeted when it comes to going after certain communities. Carding's not an issue on Bay Street. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wear my suit when I go to court basically every day. And I've never had an officer come up to me and say, hey, son, where are you going? Right. Right? So for me, it's more of an issue when you have communities that feel like they're disenfranchised, they're less likely to take part in the political process. They're less likely to feel like they're part of the community. There's going to be real civic disengagement. So I think there's a huge 
price to just being questioned at random. And also, it's your right just to be left alone. Do you think provincial governments are willing to take on the issue of policing? Nobody wants to come out and be perceived as anti-cop, right? That seems kind of like political poison these days. Right. And I understand that's not really a, a cool stance to take because inevitably we need police. But it's a question of how can we make for more positive community to police interactions? And for me, I think that's something that if the government is prudent, they should be willing to take on. And without me jumping subjects too much, mm. uh, if you look at why are police there to begin with, right? What function do they fulfill? Well, historically, police officer, police officers rather, have been rated based on how many stops they've been able to make, right? Whether they've been able to fulfill quotas. But to me, in my eyes, an officer should be there to protect and serve. If quotas are the metric which you use to decide whether or not an officer is doing a good job, then inevitably, an officer is going to do whatever they can to increase those quotas, right? So it's a question for them of, of risk. Well, how much risk am I going to take by stopping this individual as opposed to that individual, right? So like I said, you need a serious reform in the way in, the way in which policing takes place where maybe we move from quotas to how much of a positive effect are you having on yeah. that community? <laughs> That's our show for this week. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Find us at Canada Land Commons. Our producer is Kevin Sexton. Our music was by Nathan Burley. You also heard a clip from an unreleased song by Helen Back called Caught Up. Visit us at CanadaLandShow.com. If you want to chat with us, email Vicky at CanadaLandShow.com or you can reach Supriya also, Supriya at CanadaLandShow.com. The next episode of Shortcuts comes out on Thursday. Commons is bi-weekly for the rest of the summer. If you like the show, please support us. Go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.